6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of James, chapter 1, verses 13 through 27. I want you to notice in verse 17, the very first word. Every, not most, not some. Every, every good thing. Whatever's in your life, whatever crosses your path, whatever suddenly arrives on your horizon. That's good. You know where it comes from because it doesn't have any exceptions. Where does it come from? It comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. He is constant. This alludes to the immutability of God. His His unchangeableness. And that's something we don't talk a lot about, but we should. Many people presume from the propaganda that the God of Islam, the Allah of Islam, is just their word for the God of the Old Testament. Not true. The word Allah is not translated. When, when Quran is translated in other languages, Allah is not translated. That Allah is not the Arabic word for God. It's the Arabic word for the God. It's a specific God. It's the moon God. That's its origin. That's still its symbol on all, its, uh, all the mosques in the world. But the real point is, Allah is presented by the Quran as um, capricious. He's the unknowable one. You can never tell what he's going to do. That's their concept. The God of the Old Testament is the opposite of that. He makes and keeps his promises. He regards that faithfulness as one of his principal characteristics. It's emphasized uh, continually throughout his word. So he has no variableness nor shadow of turning. But this father of lights, you know, as a, as a physicist, you can imagine, I'm not going to let this one go. Um, I will spare you the equations, but for each of the attributes of God, there is a parallel kind of equation that has to do with light. When light goes through certain media, it slows down, but when it leaves that media, it speeds up again to the speed of light. If I'm the speed of light in different media, is a constant. Well, the point is, that implies an infinite source of energy in a sense. There is a concept of light when it's collimated. That's when the beams are exactly parallel. And you can do that with lenses, synthetically, obviously. But when you do that, you're placing the virtual origin of that light at infinity. You follow me? And that's what it says here. You see, this word for variableness is paralage, which is the Greek word from which we get the word parallax. Our father of lights in whom there is no parallax. He is infinite, is what that would say to a physicist. And uh, perfectly collimated light has its apparent source infinity. Now that leads, that gives me an excuse to share with you uh, an analogy. A dear friend of mine, Dr. Alex Metherell, who uh, came to the Lord during my first revelation study back uh, 100 years ago uh, in Newport Beach, uh, and since has been very prominent in the Christian community for a lot of reasons. But he shared, he's also is one of the world-class um, scientists in the area of imaging and optics and such. 
He pointed out to me, I knew a lot about holograms, but I never saw the biblical analogy. He's the one who pointed that out to me. Uh, A hologram is a form of lensless photography. It's a way of getting an image with no lenses. In fact, uh, the way you do this is if you have an object and uh, you illuminate the object with a laser, but you set it up so that same laser light can reflect from the object on some film and your laser can directly hit that film. And what the film records is where that light intersects, what they call interference, or what we might consider as intersections of the beams. And uh, when you do this, you go through this procedure, you expose the film, and you develop it, you hold it up to natural light, and it looks like a darkroom mistake. It's a cloudy piece of film. It looks like something you overexpose somehow. There's nothing there. It has no desirability in natural light. I was at, uh, in 1963, when Emmett Leith invented the laser. He did it at the University of Michigan. I remember meeting him in his laboratory one time, so this is all very vivid to me. What you do with this piece of film, you set it up again after it's processed, and you illuminate it with a laser that created it in the first place, and the, the uh, piece of film becomes like a window into a three-dimensional space. You look at this piece of film, and you're looking into the space, and you see a three-dimensional image of whatever it was that was there. And what do I mean by a three-dimensional image? Well, Let's imagine that I had an unusual pendant or something, or like this microphone here on my shirt. And let's assume I held my Bible up in front of the camera, and you took a picture. A picture gives you a two-dimensional image, a spatial image. And when you develop that and look at it, you would see me with this Bible in the way. You would not be able to see the pendant or the microphone, right? But if it was a laser, if it was a hologram... You could move your eye around to the side and look behind this and see the pendant. I use that to explain what I mean by a three-dimensional image. The, uh, the hologram is actually what they call a Fourier transform of the image. It's, a three, it's, a, it's, it's, it's in the frequency domain rather than space-time domain, and that's all a way of conversion. But the point is, what's interesting about the hologram is in natural light, it has no form nor comeliness that you desire it. But you illuminate it with the laser that created it, and you see an image. Okay. There's something else interesting about the hologram. Since that's true, as you move around, you can look through the three-dimensional world. If you cut out a segment of the film, you don't lose the image because you can look around the hole to see whatever was there. You follow me? It doesn't stay quite as sharp. You lose a little what they call resolution. But now you say, what's this got to do with anything, Chuck? Well, the Bible is like a hologram. If you look at the Bible in natural light, it's a collection of old stories and legends and whatever. There's, it doesn't have any integrity to the natural man. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, because they are spiritually discerned. But you take the Bible, and you illuminate it by the light that created it in the first place, the Holy Spirit. And what do you get? You get an image. An image of what? Jesus Christ. Exactly right. In natural light, there's no beauty. In Isaiah 53, uh, verse 2 says that. In, uh, he has no beauty that we should desire him. In nat- the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. And uh, it's interesting, too, the Bible. Have you ever noticed how it's organized? It's organized along communication engineering lines. If you are a communication engineer trying to design a communication system, and you're trying to resist either noise or, even worse, you're trying to avoid the impact of hostile jamming, you do certain things. One of the things you do, the channel width that you've got available, you take your message and you spread it across the available bandwidth. That makes it harder to jam. 
That's what it's called spread, uh, spread spectrum techniques and so forth. Well, it's interesting. The Bible does that exactly the th- same thing. Where is the chapter on baptism? Where is the chapter on salvation? You'll notice any of these key ideas are not in one place. They're distributed like a gas law or like a hologram through the whole thing. Tear out a page of the Bible and you have not lost visibility of Jesus Christ. Every key doctrine, every key truth is spread. You may lose some resolution, some detail, but you don't lose the image of God's plan of redemption, the incarnate word, the one that paid for our sin. And that's not accidental in Isaiah 28. He declares twice, I declare my word precept on precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, and goes on. God has deliberately designed it this way. And I'm beginning to believe that these Bible codes, and I don't mean just the equidistant letter sequences, which are so controversial, I'm talking about the macro codes as well as the micro codes and the rest are authentications that we have in front of us a message system that indeed came from outside our space-time. You can prove it. But let's stay on this thing here. By the way, on a hologram, if you illuminate that hologram with a laser of a different frequency, you get a distorted image. When you illuminate this by some spirit other than the Spirit of God, you will get fraud and deceit, a distorted image. Isn't that interesting? I think it's, you know, just had to share that with you. Anyway, I did get a little off the subject, but I, that's all, that all has to do with verse 17 and the parallax term. We'll move on to verse, I'll tear, tear you away from that analogy to go to verse 18. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You and I, I think, remember from Peter's letters and other things that we are born of the word, right? And uh, the new birth itself in us, is an expression of his grace and goodwill. He brought the word to bear upon our consciousness, our consciences, and uh, leading us to confess our sins and to trust the Savior he provided. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. The faith that saves you, even that's a gift from him. Not of yourselves. Not that no flesh should boast. Huh? Anyway, so we become then firstborn of him, we become his firstfruits. Just as, you know, we just finished the Passover season. I started to say Easter season. I don't know why, we can't seem to get ourselves away from using the pagan label to that holiday. And I love these people that love to say, yeah, I happen to like the King James Bible, but I love these people that say, King James is the only correct translation. Really? It's the only one that uses the word Easter in, the, in Acts 12.4. Because the word is Passover. And all the new translations have corrected that egregious error. But in Acts 12.4, in the King James, it has Easter, which is a faux pas. So I'm not knocking the King James. I love it. It's what I use. But I love these people that somehow feel that God spoke in King James English. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, I won't ask how many people are NIV positive. That's a whole other issue. Um, But in any case, uh, we just finished that, that season. And, of course, the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus was our first fruits, and we are to be his first fruits. And uh, uh, John Walbert makes the point that in Matthew 27, we have this mysterious thing where all these other graves were open and people presented themselves. He believes they were also resurrections to, make, to fulfill the prophecy of the sheave, if you will. And uh, that may be correct. But in any case, we'll move on. Verse 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. 
Now that can, is viewed by many as a measure of maturity. I will not ask for a show of hands of how many of you feel you've got that mastered. I won't do that to you. But verse 19 can be considered as the theme verse for this letter, the whole letter. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Being swift to hear, we should always be open and listening. I traveled for 30 years in the senior executive circles of Wall Street, and you meet all kinds, winners and losers. But all the winning CEOs I know had one. They're very different in many, many ways. But the ones that were the winners always were listeners. They were always listening, always gathering information about their markets or their customers or whatever. They're always receiving, receiving, listening all the time and learning. The guys that had their minds closed, had their minds made up, you know, obsessively focused, might win for a while, sooner or later would stumble. And uh, receivers, by the way, if you have any background in electronics, receivers generally don't work well when the transmitter's on. You know, if you're a ham radio operator, you know that you, I'm setting aside, you know, certain kinds of multiplexes. You know, you're either receiving or transmitting, and if your transmitter's on, you're probably not listening. Now, I happen to live with a very good personal example, Nan. She's always a receiver. When we go out and meet people, she's always asking questions, finding out about them. I always want to talk about, hey, you know what we're doing? (laughs) Blab, 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 you know. (laughs) She won't. Unless you ask her and press her hard, she won't speak. She, she won't find, what, what you? How old are your kids? What's happening now? And, this, and she remembers, and I could even remember names. I could be a pastor or something. But anyway, <laughs> swift to hear, slow to speak. Boy, <laughs> if we could learn to engage our minds before we let the clutch out. Huh? <laughs> boy, oh boy, oh boy. A pause of reflection would spare us so much damage. Uh, You might turn to Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise, and he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. (laughs) I used to sometimes quote in the same kind of context, 1630. And 16.30 reads, He that shutteth his eyes to devise forward things, moving his lips, he bringeth evil to pass. But I stopped using that when George Bush became president. I uh, watched my lips, you know. Okay, sorry. All right, anyway. Getting back to seriousness in the text. Uh, the reason for this is that we need to be careful to properly represent the one to whom we owe so much by our conduct and probably our most conspicuous part of our conduct is our tongue. In fact, James is going to talk a lot about our tongue. And we represent, we're we're ambassadors. We represent our boss. And uh, we don't do that as we should. And of course, he talks here about uh, also be slow to anger. Three things. Swift to hear, slow slow to speak, and slow to anger. Verse 20 picks up on that and says, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. We tend to get angry. We'll self-righteously angry. Well, wait a minute. God says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. 
It says that in Deuteronomy 32, verse 41. It's quoted in Romans 12, 19, and echoes in other forms all through the Scripture. It's not for us to right the wrong individually. It's the Lord's issue. And the temptation toward revenge will yield more damage than whatever was done to you. You've been hurt. You've been wronged. Unjustifiably wronged. Your response to that can do you more damage than whatever was done to you by that party. Because it can lead you to sin. James is going to spend a good part of his letter, chapters 3 and 4 in fact, pretty much, on the connection between sinful speech and selfish anger. Here again, James is never very far away from the Sermon on the Mount. He's never distant from those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And Matthew, this is all from Matthew 5, of course. Jesus, uh, as I mentioned earlier, applied the, murder against, the uh, commandment against murder. He applied that against hating, cursing, insulting, and specifically just being angry. That's a sin. The contrast to all this is the righteous life. It's interesting that when the Lord appeared to Abraham, or Abraham in those days, in Genesis 17, first verse, God says to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Be blameless. Doesn't mean be totally free of sin, but it means don't be indulged, don't indulge sin. Say, gee, Chuck, that all sounds pretty good. I hear you all those platitudes. You can't argue with that intellectually. But now wait a minute. What do you do when... You, when things are going wrong, when people are hurting you, when there's injury being thrust at you, great trick, what do you do when something comes across your path and you're really confronted with some of this stuff? What do you do? You know what a good answer is? Not the only answer, but probably the best answer? Have your quiet time. That's a great time not to sound off or react, excuse yourself, and go find a quiet corner and have your quiet time. In your quiet time, you're with your friend. You can do what you like. I mean, you can let him know how you feel. Him, privately. Because he'll deal with that with you. You know, if you give him a chance. He'd love to. He'd love to. He's your best friend, whether you realize it or not. Private, quiet time is a, is a suggestion that I can't resist underscoring here. Verse 21. Wherefore, lay apart... All filthiness and superfluity in uh, of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the ingrafted word which is able to save your souls. Well, first of all, this whole verse gives you a window right into James's worldview. Because he's going to contrast some things. He's going to say. Uh, lay apart or lay aside the evil prevalent things around you uh, which threatens you that's implied and rather humbly accept the word that's implanted in you which you can which can save you but he's contrasting laying aside versus humbly accept laying aside the evil prevalent the, the evil that's prevalent around you against the word that's planted in you and that which threatens you versus that which can save you you see that each element is antithetical to the other Lay aside the evil that's prevalent around you, which threatens you. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Okay. You see, it behooves us, as, uh, since we're born of God, to judge in ourselves the tendency to uncleanness and abundance of evil. And to receive in ourselves the word of God, through which we find practical deliverance 
from the unholy tendencies that we find ourselves in conflict with in ourselves. Now, use the term salvation of souls. This causes a lot of problems. This is not our redemption from judgment of our sins, uh, the judgment that we deserve for our sins. But it refers to the purification of our affections, which are expressed in our soul's activities. For the, at this point, it might be a good time to take a look at Matthew 7. Whenever we get too comfortable, we should always keep one foot in Matthew 7. And we'll pick it up about verse 24. Therefore, whosoever uh, heareth these things of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and the beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Very simple, well-known idiom, and yet do we really apply it? What are we really building on? We're talking about our affections, our root where we are. And uh, Now, incidentally, in view of this verse in James, minimizing the danger of evil is in light of this verse recklessly unrealistic. You can't minimize the danger of doing evil. We pray for safety rather than purity because you and I don't see impurity as dangerous. That's really what he's getting at. We don't realize that impurity is where the danger is. We tend to pray for safety rather than pray for purity. The biblical repentance that we should be crying out for is, God, I don't want to be like this anymore. Not what's happening to me, but it's my response to what's happening that's where the danger lies. Verse 22, but, ye doer, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, uh, deceiving uh, your own selves. How many have heard that before? How does one, first of all, become a hearer only? Well, there's about at least four major ways. You can become a hearer only. One is by being relativistic. Letting, uh, falling uh, victim to subjectivity, relativism, comparing one with another, and well, that's not as bad as some people, that kind of thing. The minute you start doing that, you're being a hearer only. Another strange way you can be a hearer only is by being superstitious. What do I mean by that? That's to rely on something sort of magical. You know, it's interesting, uh, Israel did that for Samuel 4. They kept losing these battles. Well, it's going to be okay. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant and having it up front, right? That'll fix it. <laughs> they got clobbered and the Ark was stolen. See, they were placing their confidence in the Ark, not in the Lord. That's an easy trap to fall in. You and I can do that with the Bible. You and I can do that with the church. You don't trust the Bible as an object or some kind of ceremonial thing. You want to put your confidence in the Lord. The Bible is relevant in the sense that it's the Word of God. Indeed, don't misunderstand me. But there's a tendency in these kinds of things to ascribe mystical value to things or certain conditions rather than to keep your focus on your relationship with Him. 
A third way you can be a hearer and not a doer is through emotion rather than understanding. Responding to a message because, oh, my heart was stirred. Great, how long will that last? Where should you be anchored? In understanding what God has said, not in, in the rhetoric or styling of a, of a presentation or something of that nature. And, of course, one of the other ways is being theoretical rather than being obedient. Knowing all the doctrines and all the check verses and, and uh, all of that. And uh, you do that, you're likely to leave divisiveness behind you rather than relationships. Being too theoretical rather than being obedient to his word. First Peter one twenty three. we are born again by his word. And if so, we are called to walk in obedience to the faith that's revealed in the scriptures. To do anything else is to be self-deceived. And imagining that somehow intellectual assent is all that's required. There are many people writing in Christian, the Christian field. You, you can sort of get the sense that there's an intellectual assent, but it's not clear that there's really a, a wholehearted commitment to the person. Anyway, then, let's flip that coin over. How then, if that's the case, how do we become a doer of the word? How do you do that? Well, probably again by four things. One is by looking intently, searching the scriptures, digging, not just reading devotionally, not just skimming the surface, but digging seriously, intently. And I personally believe it's helpful, if you have that attitude, is to invest in your word. If you haven't got a good study Bible, go pick one out. Which one's best? I don't know. Wear one out and then pick another one. Invest in a concordance. Invest in a set of encyclopedias or dictionaries. Spend a little money and have a resource base at your fingertips when you're by yourself. So when you have questions, you can, boy, you can get in there, not just skim the little familiar verses. Look intently. Second thing, make it con- by, by continuing, making it continuing, not uh, making it habitual, not occasional. Third thing, by not forgetting, learning the scripture. I don't mean just memorizing, but really learn the scripture. How do you learn the scripture? You eat the elephant one bite at a time. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.